It's Acts chapter 13. I'll be reading verses 1 through 3. And this will be the text of Ben's message this morning. So again, Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Morning, church. It's good to be here, huh? It's good to be into God's presence and now into His Word, which reminds us of His promises to us. So we had a little bit of a gap last week, but this is part two, so if you were with us a couple weeks ago, we started looking at this passage. I've had this passage circled in my mind, I guess, for well over a year. Prior to last summer, Summer of Love, this passage was what led us ultimately into uh, studying Acts for the fall and, and continuing now through this summer. And so I've slowed down here just to try to capture the why. Why is this passage so significant and so convicting? It has been for me for years. It, it is for the greater, uh, broader Alliance family. It's a, it's a key passage because it reveals this early church, the first really diverse church, the first greenhouse environment and that's been captured by our, our movement in the Alliance for our church planting uh, efforts. And so we have adopted that vision to be like a greenhouse. And so um, we would grow new shoots, deep roots, and diverse fruit. And we see that here in the Antioch church. We met them in Acts chapter 11. And now we see uh, this pivotal moment really for the early church. Nothing is the same after this event that we just heard read. The church really expands and multiplies through the effort of Paul and Barnabas and they, as they go on mission. We see this church sending out these missionaries, giving generously and planting churches. The vision that we have, as well as the broader Alliance community. Really, the Antioch church grasped at a heart level Acts 1.8. Jesus' final words to the church who was waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come on you, Jesus said, because he was going and they were wondering what's next. The Holy Spirit will come on you in power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is where he spoke those words, in Judea, which was the region that Jerusalem was in, in Samaria, amongst a people not like you, in fact, that there's really walls of hostility built between, and even to the ends of the earth. Jesus has said, you will, you will be my witnesses in that way. Remember, he had also said to that smaller group of disciples that was recorded in Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So this church is really embodying that. They're taking it to heart. That they would be those missionaries. Antioch was a long ways from Jerusalem, but it wasn't nearly the ends of the earth. It was the capital of Syria, today modern-day southern Turkey, but the ends of the earth were still on their heart and mind. That they, There were so many more people who needed to hear about the love and grace, forgiveness and freedom, hope and healing, power and provision of Jesus. And it was their privilege to do something about it. 
That if God loved them so much that he would pursue them, invite them and adopt them into his family, then maybe others would be adopted too. And they considered it a privilege to preach Jesus, the true King, the Lord, and Savior. Remember, this is the first really diverse church. Up until that point, there was kind of a blind spot within the early church leaders that if Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, then Gentiles, non-Jews, needed to first become Jews to receive him as their Messiah. And that's not the message of the gospel. Jesus came and broke down walls. The gospel is for all peoples. And this church really embodies that. It's made up of Africans and Asians, Gentiles and Jews, Greeks and Middle Easterners, all worshiping together, not separated, not worshiping in two different places, as was often the case as the gospel first started to expand across Judea. They were recipients of that incredible grace, love, and mercy of Jesus. It was fresh upon them. And so they were convicted to be ministers of the gospel. So they've been believers for months, and they are now committing themselves to an incredible effort to send out missionaries, to give generously, and to see churches planted. And so I titled this kind of mini-series, The Posture of Mission. This church had this incredible posture of mission, and I pulled out six things. We saw the first three last time. Soft hearts, bent knees, and listening ears. You can rewind, that's online if you want to capture that. But today, flexible schedules, empty stomachs, and open hands. Three characteristics, three postures that we see in this early church that was really the first greenhouse church. And we want to ask, which of those are true of us? Which ones are aspirational that we still must grow in? First one here, flexible schedules. Like my friend Dwight England says, if you have a jar and you want to fill it with walnuts and rice, you better put the walnuts in first. It's common sense. And I always told Dwight, I don't think I have a jar, and if I did, I, didn't, I don't know that I'd want it full of walnuts and rice. But I get the point. And it should be evident that there's a spiritual application to that. There's an application to that when it comes to our schedules. That's kind of the primary uh, teaching that, that Dwight shares. What, do you have your, your, your calendars and your schedule prioritized? What's the big stuff? Because if it's not in there first, it's not getting in. If you fill the jar with rice and then you want to cram in some walnuts, good luck. What are your walnuts? There's no magic number that could be defined in many ways. Maybe a good exercise this week would be to consider, do you have 10? 10 big things that are core, that must get into your calendar first. The small stuff will fit around it. How can we know that the Antioch church had their priorities straight? Well, at least in one way. We know they were committed to corporate worship, to gathering together, to be together, to pray together, to read and study God's word together, to receive his teaching, to pray and praise their king, to celebrate communion together. They did this often. This was a regular rhythm. This wasn't just a once a week thing. This was a multiple times a week gathering that they were committed to. You know, today the average, the average church attendance, and we know that's a way to measure something, but amongst church goers, the average church attendance is three out of eight weeks. 
So if you make it half the time, you're above average. I think all of you are above average. But what I, what I find striking, and it's not about a gathering like this, we simply try to come together to do the same things that have been the rhythms of the early church, but as we often say, this is not the church. The church is you as you go and both gather outside of these walls and also engage the mission of Jesus in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, bringing the presence of Jesus through the power of the Spirit into those places, ministering one to another. That's the church. This is a corporate gathering to sing praises to our King, to receive teaching and instruction, to make connections and relationship. But man, I can't, I can't imagine. This early church probably would have been blown away. You mean three out, of, three out of eight weeks? We don't go three out of eight days without gathering together around the Lord's Supper and to minister to one another. And what I would say on, on this is, and it's kind of like preaching to the choir when you say something like this at a gathering, where you are already present, but your commitment to gathering with believers, with one another, whether in this kind of environment or through life groups that meet in homes, through growth groups that study the word together, through service efforts and ministering on teams, your commitment to that is not about you. Maybe that's third on the list at best. Your commitment to gather is one, first about worship, you're bringing glory to God. And we're called to be His people. We're in response, a people. It's first about glory to God. Now, I hope when we gather in a place like this that we too are blessed. We receive. We don't want to miss because we meet Jesus here. We experience Him. That's what we center everything around. It's around this table, around His Word that we would experience the presence of Jesus when we gather. Just as Craig said, that our eyes are pointed to Him and fixed on Him. That's why we do this. And I hope that you do receive. I receive as I gather with you. I receive as I exercise a gift to preach. I receive. But it's first about giving glory to God. He is worthy. And we do so together. We can do it in our cars listening to the radio. We can do it on our knees in the morning getting ready for the day. We bring glory to God in all that we do, Paul says. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, bring, bring glory to God. Do it all for His glory. So this is a unique way, it's a unique expression. That's first, whenever we gather, is to bring Him glory. That's not about us. Second, it's about one another. Your gathering is about one another for encouragement. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. Let's not neglect to meet together as, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. That's the day capitalized in your, your scriptures there. Most scriptures will be capitalized to represent the day of the Lord's coming until that day comes. So even in that day, there was a, there was a habit of withdrawing, of not engaging into community. The word says, don't neglect meeting together or you might miss out on what God wants to do or say in your life. No, did you catch that? That may well be true. I hope that's a part of when we gather that we hear from God. We meet with Him. We respond to Him. But that's not what the Word says here. Do not neglect meeting together because others need you. Because it's encouraging. By your simple presence, 
you may be encouraging to one another. A smile. We pray on Sunday mornings, almost every morning when we gather before the service and pray, we say, Lord, make us ministers, whether we have a formal role of service today or not. Help us see with your eyes and respond with your heart. A smile, a handshake, a hug, an encouraging word may be exactly what's needed to help one of us, a brother or sister in need, move forward into the week to come. We come together to encourage one another. For the glory of God, to encourage one another, and maybe a third benefit is we too receive. As we meet with one another and meet with Jesus, we find we are both encouraged and convicted for what the Lord is leading us to. So gatherings like this one, but maybe just as important in our homes and life groups, in our homes and our neighborhoods, as our doors are open and our tables are spread, as we grow, dig into growth groups, even at 6.30 in the morning on a Tuesday, these are the walnuts. Some of them. Get them in first or they're not going to get in. Furthermore, certainly this early church had margin in their life that probably none of us know. I think it's fair to say that the pace of life in our world today is faster than it's ever been. Maybe not in every culture in the world. But I, I would wager that in our culture, it's one of the most, and I tried to find a, a right word for it, frenzied cultures. One of the most frenzied cultures in our world today. You know, Pastor Dan, last week when he preached, I think he posed a powerful question. If Redmond was known for an attribute, what would that attribute be? I've had a few conversations this week. I wonder if you have another good exercise for life groups or just chatting afterward. He was preaching on John 4, and Sychar meant drunken. It was a town called drunken. Not necessarily a favorable attribute. If Redmond had an attribute, what would it be? I wonder if frenzied would get a vote. Some others that a few of us talked about was pushing, striving, grasping, urgent. There's just this character. We try to play it off like that doesn't exist. But there's a reaching and a striving that we sense in our culture, and it kind of keeps that, that pace of frenzied. I don't know if you're like me, but there's, there's a few moments in my life, they're actually called margins, and I'm uncomfortable with them, because when they happen and there's nothing on my calendar, I almost get anxious that there must be something more to do. Well, okay, when's my next appointment? I pull out my phone. What, what's kind of on my to-do list that I need to check off? Because right now, that's margin. And we don't know what to do with it. The early church had margin. And they often filled it with gatherings with one another. Stopping in, popping in. Would we even know what to do with margins? And I wonder with margins if we would start to see and reach the marginalized in our community. Certainly it allowed them to be invested not only in one another's lives, but Margin and space in flexible schedules means that interruptions can be welcomed opportunities for ministry. 
A simple example is when you drive by that stranded car on the side of the road. And what's your first immediate response? I know mine is often, if I wasn't in a hurry to the next appointment, I could stop and help. I'm not sure what I could really do. I'm not a mechanic, but I could be present with that person. But alas, I'm running late. There's no margin built in there. A good friend of mine who was a pastor kept a gas can in his trunk specifically so he couldn't use the excuse, I don't know what I would do. Because he's like, I found that 90% of that, th- th- those stuck on the side of the road with their lights flashing have just run out of gas. He's like, I'm not a mechanic either, but I can fill up their gas with a gallon to get them to the next stop. We still have to overcome that excuse of, but if I wasn't in a hurry, I could stop and help. Use that as a picture for those in need. Or maybe we don't even see them. One of those walnuts may actually be margin that needs to get in the jar first. What do we do? That's just maybe one. I'm not even sure that's a suggestion. It's a picture. So I restrain myself from suggestions because it may be things that are convictions for me. I'd invite you to pray through that. Because see, we can tinker with our schedule, just like A.W. Tozer says, we can tinker with our soul, but never truly engage the Spirit. And so if we need to see the marginalized, have space in our life to be flexible, to serve, to minister one to another, or to share the hope of the gospel with lost, hurting, and broken people, if we're going to do that, maybe the first is simply to pray it. Lord, give us your heart. Help us see with your eyes that we might respond. Maybe we'll see people as walnuts. After all, we're a bit nuts. What about empty stomachs? Speaking of walnuts, how is empty stomachs a posture of mission? At minimum, it's a practice of this early church. And we see it in the New Testament, early believers. When I say empty stomachs, you're probably getting nervous because you're thinking I'm going to start talking about fasting, actually skipping meals to pray. That is what I'm talking about. And we would like to maybe make an analogy of it and say, well, I I don't need to actually fast meals. I'll fast something else. I'll fast ice cream. And that'll make me more holy. Now, hey, if God tells you to fast ice cream, you probably should listen, but I'm wondering if it's more self-serving. I I wonder if the reason we don't regularly, when I say we there, put that in in, in quotes, I think it's the the Western evangelical church, at least as one group, so there's not a singling out of of us, but it certainly I could reflect in my own life too. The reason we don't regularly practice fasting, actually skipping meals, Going hungry. Perhaps we don't understand it, but it makes me wonder if our hesitance or our reticence to fast is due more to our abhorrence of being uncomfortable or our unwillingness to be patient. Perhaps it's both. We do both in our culture. One, we avoid discomfort at all costs. 
and skipping meals is uncomfortable. You know, we have a phrase in, in, our, in our family that's not allowed. We have many. But one is, I'm starving. Not allowed. You are not starving. You may be very hungry. I'll let that one slide. But you are not starving. Now, my kids don't understand that, that concept. I don't truly understand it. I've just seen it, and they haven't. And it's not time for them to see that yet. But what would it mean to be very hungry? And what if we could do that intentionally? Why would we do that intentionally? We want to avoid discomfort. We want also instant gratification. And I think our spiritual lives are like that too. Fasting, ironically, is slow. You can't quickly fast. It takes time and sacrifice to become very hungry. Some of you are like, that just takes two hours. That doesn't take that long. <laughs> haven't had second breakfast this morning. You're talking about food already. What time is it? I fasted last night from bedtime till this morning when I break fasted. We want God to answer prayer instantly too, don't we? I prayed. I've been praying and praying and praying for six and a half minutes now. I hear nothing. I have no answer. My Bible's open. I guess I'll just do what I think is best. A little exaggeration, maybe. Fasting is slow. Fasting requires sacrifice. Now remember, this early church is a picture of a diverse church. Now for, for Jews, fasting was prescribed, right? I mean, there were regular times, days, and seasons of fasting. That was a, it was a rhythm and a religion that they followed from their earliest memories. But this church is not primarily Jewish. And yet fasting is now is a rhythm. And remember who their teacher is. The Apostle Paul, truly Jewish, but at this point in his life, he is railing against anything religious as a means to earn God's favor. Right? The gospel has transformed his life. The scales fell off his eyes and he realized, no, no, it's not about religion, it's about our relationship with King Jesus. So if he's their teacher, and they're not primarily Jewish as a church, and yet they are fasting together, it must be important. Remember, Paul taught like Jesus. Jesus came not to establish another religion or tweak the old one, but to bring in the new, the new covenant, a new, the new wineskin. And he taught in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 16 through 18. He taught about fasting. He taught how not to do it. Don't be like the hypocrites who basically announce it for the show, for the approval of men. But when you fast, do it like this, he said. You can read that passage. But the point is the when you fast. When Jesus taught, he taught as an expectation. This will be a discipline and a rhythm in your life. It was for him. So why? This isn't a sermon about fasting. It probably could be. Because we probably need to hear it. But how would fasting become a regular discipline in our life and why? If, if we don't answer the why, 
to simply be uncomfortable or think that's going to make us closer to God would merely be religious, which of course we don't want to do. And you would rightly say, I can pray and God, I know God hears my prayers. If I'm, I can pray if I'm not fasting. I can pray on a full stomach. Absolutely. Fasting, though, becomes spiritual as we pray through the physical hunger. Because see, what fasting from food does, fasting a meal, brings a constant reminder of an emptiness and of something that you need and want. And that becomes spiritual as you pray through that emptiness and that hunger and say, Jesus, I'm reminded of my longing, my want, and my need for you. You alone satisfy. You are the bread of life. You are the living water. John chapter 4 that Dan preached and reminded us of last week. You are the only one that truly satisfies. We pray through that physical hunger into the spiritual to remind us of our longing. I know I've been in seasons and places in my life and I'm fairly certain that all of you can relate to this where your prayer would be, I want to want more. I want to desire. Lord, help me. And just reflecting this week, I wonder if we should ask about our fasting rhythm if that is a prayer. I want to desire more of the Lord, more of the Spirit, holiness more. Perhaps we should be asking that question, not as a means for God's favor and blessing, but as a, if I don't hunger and thirst, I want to feel it. Fasting, I think, does bring glory to God because it's an act of sacrifice. But just like the Sabbath day, that they, the Sabbath became very religious for the Jews, what, what constituted work, what couldn't be work, and remember what Jesus taught them? The Sabbath is not made for man. Or man is not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. It's a blessing. How is the Sabbath a blessing? Because after six days of labor, resting feels really good. Creating margin, creating space, that's a gift. Fasting, though it makes us uncomfortable, is a gift. It's for us. It's not to get God's attention. Fasting doesn't make God speak. It may help us to listen. I would say if we don't regularly fast, then the worship that we can give through eating and drinking may be incomplete. As I quoted earlier, Paul says that, 1 Corinthians 10. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Even through eating and drinking, we can offer worship and thanksgiving. One, for God's provision. Two, for, man, that tastes good. Why did God give us taste buds? And so many flavors and aromas. It's a gift. And our worship through receiving and enjoying food may be incomplete if we have never known true hunger. I remember the first time that I did an extended beyond 24-hour fast. I think it was, it was either high school or early college, and this thing called the 30-hour famine was kind of running its way through the church. Good ministry, I think. I, I don't know if they got some lawsuits against them for starving kids, but 
That would probably just another answer of our government. I remember this 30-hour famine, this 30-hour fast, which was supposed to obviously engage our hearts with the truly starving in our world. And I remember at the end of that, being so hungry, like, let's go, let's go out to eat. And we were also poor, so we went to Arby's. Gasp, I know. But the, I remember that roast beef sandwich like, like yesterday. I mean, just how many, how many meals do you remember the, the, the taste of, the smell of, and what it felt like? And this was an Arby's, I think, king roast beef sandwich. And it's in great, this is like 20 years ago because of the hunger. Even an Arby's roast beef sandwich is memorable, was enjoyable. I don't know about satisfying, but I digress. And maybe that's just a tangent side point. But as we make this spiritual, Lord, I want more of you. I want to hunger and thirst for you. I want to hear from you. I want to be true of me, what the psalmist says, Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And the only way that that can become true is through a fasting period, an empty period, spiritually longing and waiting upon the Lord. Lord, I don't hear from you. Can anyone relate? Is anyone right there right now? Lord, I am praying. I know it's not long. I know, I, I know I'm impatient. I know, but I'm longing for you. I want to hear from you. I'm at this juncture in my life, this crossroads. I just, I want to know what's next. Or I'm, Lord, answer, speak, heal, mend this relationship, provide. We pray those prayers often, don't we? When God speaks, see, if we become impatient and simply act, we don't get this to be true in our life. Man, your words are sweeter than honey. They are satisfying. You have spoken. You have met me. I have hungered and thirsted for you and you have met me. May that be true of us. This isn't a sermon about a rhythm of fasting, how much, when, how long. It's none of that. That becomes religious. But pray and ask the Holy Spirit to convict if you must be convicted that you would walk in obedience to His voice. Finally here, open hands. Flexible schedules, empty stomachs, open hands. This passage, and I could have begun here, it's so convicting for any pastor, and maybe we want to just skip over it altogether because it challenges our commitment to Christ's mission and to church planting to seeing movement happen, to sacrifice, to our willingness to give our best, to send our friends. Paul and Barnabas are the kind of leaders that you want to keep around. Paul, one of the most gifted, dynamic preachers and evangelists in the history of the church. And if he was rough around the edges, which it sounds like he might have been, he denies it. He says, well, I'm, I'm intense when I write to you, but, you know, I'm just gentle when I'm with you. He certainly had his own blind spots like we all do. But so if he was intense and harsh and primarily convicting when he taught, man, Barnabas made up for in spades. The encourager par excellence 
a, a loyal friend and advocate. Man, someone you just wanted to hang out with and just give me a word today, Barnabas. Would you encourage me? And he'd have it ready for you. And these two guys, man, if you're praying, Lord, what would you have us do? And a word comes, like we said last time, maybe through Lucius who stands up and says, I think God wants us to send out Paul and Barnabas. And everyone like turns and looks at Lucius. Go, let's go back and let's ask again because I don't think that that's from the Lord. These are our best. We need to build around them. We need to bring them on staff. We need to give them more power. We need to give them raises and benefits. We need to keep them here. Lucius. How can you send your best? By, by, by all accounts, this was hard for the church, for this church. Imagine for a minute you attend a small church. Go with me. <laughs> Imagine that you're blessed with some great leaders who have become dear friends. Imagine that they've walked with you in life. They've encouraged you when you're down. They've been, served alongside you in the trenches. They've been there. They answer the phone. They respond to your Facebook posts. They've taught you. They've leaned in. They've sacrificed. So if you can imagine this, you wouldn't send them away. Unless the Holy Spirit is doing a work. Unless the Holy Spirit is still on the move unless there were lost people who still haven't heard of the hope of Jesus. As I said, I've been convicted by this passage for years as the broader Alliance family has, and my prayer has been something like this. Jesus, grow our commitment and our conviction to your mission. Create in us a posture of mission with open hands that we might send even our best Make us more like your church in Antioch. Make us more like a greenhouse. And I think one of the reasons I had this passage circled in my mind well over a year ago was for the importance to preach that. How important it is to be like a greenhouse. A place where people grow deep roots in the Lord, but not where they stay long term because the harvest happens in the fields. And we need to be a people who engage in the mission of Jesus who take Acts 1-8 seriously, as Antioch Church did, to pray and to send and be willing to send even our best. And I realized in writing that this week that I don't need to preach that message to you today. That you have become a greenhouse. Twice in the last month, we've had two families gather to the front We've gathered around them, laid hands on them as this early church did and prayed for God's blessing as they went out, expecting that we will never be in fellowship with them in the same way again, which ultimately would be true for the Antioch church. Paul and Barnabas would never return to minister to them in the same way. And today that church does not exist but the impact and the legacy that they've left ripples throughout history because they were a greenhouse, because they were willing to send, to give generously. You know, one of these families, the Smiths, we've known them for five months. The seasons in the greenhouse are not assigned by us. 
Some are here for a short season, some for a long one. God seems to often move, especially in an area like ours. In five months, you embraced this family who wasn't even here full-time as they were ministering both in Renton and in Seattle. And I don't know the full amount, but I do know that over $90,000 was pledged from you to support their ministry for the next three years. That's incredible. And you know what's incredible to me is that that's almost the same amount that was given to the Daltons five years ago when they went to South Africa. And God is building a greenhouse here. And really this is just language. Maybe it's a visionary picture language of something that he's been doing, I believe, here for decades before almost any of us. Maybe not before Mary and Bobby, but before most of the rest of us. A legacy that we want to capture. By the way, this month marks 60 years that Mary Spears has sat in that pew, I think, right there. (laughs) 60 years. And I think this greenhouse has been richer and more beautiful for it. Thank you. Sometimes the seasons in the greenhouse are long, and sometimes they're short. But may we be like a greenhouse. And so I want to encourage you Well done. Keep it up. And I want to ask for your encouragement. Because this is hard. It's good when you put it on the whiteboard and on the big post-it notes and you have a meeting and you say, yeah, we want to be like the Antioch church. We want to do, we want to be an alliance church that that sins and blesses and takes Matthew 28 seriously and Acts 1-8 seriously. Okay, what would that look like? And let's grab some imagery and some pictures and some, some phrases. That all sounds good. Until you stand in the front of the church laying hands on friends and say, we love you and God bless and go. Or when God moves others and we don't get the opportunity to stand and put a hand on the shoulder and bless, but he's moved him out of the greenhouse. This is hard. And the temptation comes in to stop praying so fervently to become a greenhouse, to stop praying for the mission to continue to go, and we know we can't do that. We're quickly convicted on that. But we can stop investing into other people's lives. We can protect our hearts a little bit more. We can stop getting so close because they'll probably just leave too. And I'm asking for your encouragement, whether through words or prayers, as I pray for you, that we would be so convinced and convicted about the good of this, the right of this, and truly that goodbyes in the kingdom of God are always temporary. And the mission is always paramount, that we would never stop loving, drawing close, Asking, Lord, what would you have of me? Am I to send or to be the sent one? Am I to pray or to give? That that would continually be true of all who gather here and all who lead here. Be encouraged and please encourage. 
if saying goodbye is easy, it means we haven't truly loved. If giving is easy, it means we haven't truly sacrificed. If following Jesus is easy, it means we haven't truly exercised faith. Jesus said in Mark 8.34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it, will find it. We know this is our call, the call of the gospel, the call of Jesus. A life of sacrifice, a life of giving, a life of going, a life of praying and asking, where are you, Lord? Holy Spirit, how are you at, at move and are we in step with you? Jesus didn't say it would be easy, in fact, quite the opposite. He said it would be hard. But he did promise that we'd never be alone, that he would go with us and before us truly in every way. He, the greatest missionary, who has loved and pursued us from heaven to earth, none of us will ever go that far or give up that much. And he's called us to the same, to find purpose in his mission, to find life in his mission. May we be convicted, convinced, and even encouraged. So how's our posture, church? And even now as we respond and we gather around this table, being reminded what Jesus has done, his broken body for us, his life for us. He is the bread of life. He is the source of living water. This is the blood of the new covenant that we find life in him. So even as we gather, and maybe it's a regular rhythm, I pray it's not a religion. I pray even as you come, it's about relationship, being reminded of what he's done. I say with my kids almost every Sunday as we take communion together and they are still trying to grasp it, but I always lead with, Jesus did this with his friends when he was here and he invites us to be his friends. We get to come around the table. And so if you're a friend of Jesus or desire to be a follower of Jesus, this communion meal is for you. Come and receive it. Take it when you are ready, either individually or with family. We can't all gather around one table this morning, not like this, but maybe we will at restaurants or homes today or throughout the week, breaking bread, sharing in communion. Even as we do, what's our posture? Soft hearts? Listening ears? Bent knees in humility? Hunger and thirst? Open hands, all that you've given, Lord, is I give back to you. Let's be the church. Let's be the greenhouse. Let's continue to do that in these moments throughout the week. And God willing, in the decades ahead. Invite the team to come and pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, your mercy, your love, your pursuit of us, even us. Even me. And even when I'm lost and wayward and continue to be, you love and you pursue. And I thank you that's true for each one here. By your grace and mercy, we live and breathe. We are here right now because of you and you alone. Help us to respond with soft hearts, with listening ears, with bent knees, with a hunger and thirst, and with open hands to be your church to be your family, 
on your mission because you are worthy, because we need one another, because lost people matter to you and you want them saved. Have all the glory today and this week, Lord. Lead us, grow us, bear fruit through us, we pray. In your name, amen.